Good morning. Today I'd like us to contemplate unity and maturity. And the context to contemplate in is in the church. <clears throat> Often we can have a good idea. And sometimes when we have a good idea, and particularly in a church context where we feel prompted by the Holy Spirit, we think, right, I bet to tell the pastor because God will want him to carry out this good idea. Over the last couple of years, I've felt prompted uh, to consider what does good eldership look like? And then, as I was contemplating it, the Holy Spirit said, no, don't contemplate what good eldership looks like. Contemplate what great eldership looks like. I thought, oh, that sounds good. So I shared that thought with Kim Peters, who's our new regional leader, hoping in some ways that he would think, oh, yes, that's a God idea, and pick up the idea and run with it. But he said, that's great that God's given you that idea. I'll help you as we develop that thought. So we've called together a meeting for elders in our association. And the idea is that we're going to gather together to network and to encourage one another by sharing stories and examples, possibly war stories, possibly great stories, but just to be real with each other and share our eldership experiences with the view of building on the concept that we are stronger together than we are apart. But what I've experienced in my time on eldership is that often when we have times which are hard, we stay separated. And there's not the connection with other elders from other churches who maybe have got some wisdom or some experience or some capacity, some energy to help and encourage others. So we've organised our first meeting and it's going to be at the end of next month. Um, so my hope is that it encourages other elders and other churches. So what's that got to do with unity here at Parkins Baptist? Well, hopefully in 20 minutes, you'll know what my answer to that question is. Now, recently I was preparing for this meeting they'll told you about, and I was researching names given to different groups of people, because I was thinking, well, if we've got a group of elders gathering together, what could we call ourselves? And so I went to the dictionary, and I wasn't inspired by the answer, because the answer was for a group of elders is elderly. <laughs> and I thought, that doesn't sound quite right. It's not really the inspiring answer I was looking for. It sounds more like we should get together and have rugs to put on our knees and sources to put our teeth in. Now, now no, no disparaging. Don't feel bad if you do have a rug for your knee and sources you do put your teeth in. I'm sure God will bless you in that. But I did come across some interesting and amusing group names, so I'd like to share some of them with you. A group of boys is called a rascal. A group of butchers is called a goring. A group of dentists, an amalgam. Some of these are quite clever. A group of dermatologists is called a rash. A group of drummers, Chris, is called a roll, a roll of drummers. A group of fishermen is called an exaggeration. 
I, I, don't, I don't know where they got that from. A group of girls, remember boys were called rascals, a group of girls is called a giggle. A giggle of girls. Jim, I think they were thinking of you in this one, a group of golfers. A group of golfers is called a lie. <laughs> group of grandparents, there are two, two options here. Grandparents are either a nag or a wisdom. I prefer the wisdom. A group of gynaecologists, is called a smear. <laughs> a group of husbands. A group of husbands is called an unhappiness. A group of wives is called an impatience. A group of in-laws is called an imposition. I like this one. A group of Irishmen is called a pint. <laughs> a, a pint of Irishmen. Group of librarians, a catalogue. Group of mechanics, a clutch. A group of microbiologists, a colony. A group of midwives is called an expectation. Group of mothers-in-law, it's called a mutter. Group of parents, a persistence. Physicists, a nucleus, that's one for the scientists in the mix. A group of plumbers is called a flush. A group of preachers is called a pontification. A group of public speakers is called a twaddle. I wonder if we were looking for a name that would be appropriate for us as Christians, other than the word Christian. What sort of words do we think would describe us as a group? I think sadly if society were to think about words that would describe us, they would come up with words like judgmental, words like exclusive, maybe words or phrases like not to be trusted. And that's sad, because I don't believe that's who we want to be, and I don't believe that's who God calls us to be. He calls us to be people who are described as loving, as caring, as humble and as faithful. And in our passage today, we're going to explore two other characteristics that I believe God plans for us as a group of people, and that's united and mature. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn to them, or the words are on the screen if you'd like to follow, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. 
So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Paul has said that there is an expectation of a response. The response is because that Jesus has saved us so we can know God, but also in knowing God we could love him. And our response to loving God is also to love each other. So Paul urges us to live a life worthy of that calling. I wonder how are we doing What does our response look like? If we've been called to know God, to love him, and to love each other, how are we going? Paul doesn't just leave it there, though. He gives some suggestions in that passage about the type of things that we could do to express that calling, to express that love. So in verse 2 of that passage... He encourages us to be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. To me, being completely anything means that we are totally committed to it. It's not partially. It doesn't say be humble and gentle if you feel like it, or be humble and gentle if you have time. Or be humble and gentle if the other person is being nice to you or the other person is deserving of it. It says be completely humble and gentle. No qualifications, no exceptions. So what does humility look like? I've um, researched and got three renowned quotes, hopefully to give us some idea of their thoughts. Humility, according to C.S. Lewis, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Because I think if you're like me, my natural response is to go into any situation and think about how I am going to respond in that, how it's going to affect me. When really humility is going into a situation with others where I'm thinking of them first. Do they feel welcome? Do they need a word of encouragement? Do they need someone to share a joke with? Do they need someone to listen to them? Going into a situation in a humble way is thinking of others first. What about gentleness? St. Francis de Sales was a Swiss clergyman. and He said this, Nothing is so strong as gentleness. Nothing so gentle as real strength. 
The world would sometimes have us believe that people who are gentle are people who have no strength. But the reality is that gentleness comes from strength, that we decide that we are going to treat others in a way which is non-threatening, a way which is inclusive, a way which is welcoming, a way which acknowledges how they are, whether they need some tenderness. And Joyce Meyer, someone I struggled with earlier on because I thought she shouted her messages rather than spoke them, but she shouted some good stuff. She talked about patience. Patience is not the ability to wait, but how you act while you are waiting. I think it's significant that Paul told us we need to have patience with each other. He knew that the people in the church at Ephesus to who he wrote this passage to was a combination of converted Jews and Gentiles. And it was a combination of different people from different strata of society. And they would look at life differently. And the way they looked at any different aspect of life could cause tension. But I think Paul, in most of his letters, he encouraged them to be sent to other churches so they could be read in other locations as well. And he knew that all churches would be different and that people in every church would need to practice patience. And it's true for us too. We are different. We can cause friction. Some of us more easily and more quickly than others. But we all need patience. Have you ever prayed for patience? It's something that new Christians do. As a new Christian, I prayed for patience. And what did God do? He answered my prayer by placing someone or something in my life that was a constant annoyance or irritation. And then this irritation or annoyance continues. And we say, God, please take this away. It's unpleasant. And God says, but you want to learn patience. And so he leaves that annoyance and that irritation so that we can learn patience. I'm still learning it. Perhaps you are as well. But patience and gentleness are fruits of the Spirit. And they are defined in Galatians 5.22 as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. As we live our Christian life out with God, he will develop those fruits in our lives. But I think it's important in looking at this passage to understand that Paul's motivation in saying that the people in Ephesus needed to be patient with one another was not so that the person exercising the patience could feel built up and tick off that character quality and sort of say, once I get all these character qualities, I'll be the perfect Christian. It's not a a selfish motivation to gather together these fruits of the Spirit. He said our motivation in being patient is love. Our motivation should be, because I love my brother or my sister, I will choose to be patient because it's best for them. I believe that's the sort of motivation that Paul is encouraging. In verse 3 he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. 
Make every effort. What does that mean? I've written a few and read many legal contracts over my career. And most contracts require certain degrees of performance by the parties to that contract. So there are legal definitions for the level of effort the parties must apply in carrying out their obligations. And generally it would be either exercise reasonable endeavours or exercise best endeavours. See mate? So I have the legal definitions of reasonable and best endeavours. And I'd like to, you to think as I'm reading these to you, which of these applies to Paul's instruction for us to make every effort? So we'll start off with reasonable endeavours. If a party promises to use or take reasonable endeavours to achieve a certain outcome, this means that a party is generally not required to take actions that might prejudice them, unless they have specifically contracted to do so. Rather than requiring a person to take every possible action, reasonable endeavours requires that the party to take actions a reasonable person would do in the same circumstances. So give it a go, but if it's going to cost you something, you maybe don't have to. Okay? And just sort of think, well, that, looking at that, I think that doesn't really fit, but I wonder if that's how we behave. That I'll give it a crack, I'll try and be patient, but that person is really irritating me, so I'll just maybe move on to the next one. If there's a little bit of a cost, do we persevere? Let's move on to best endeavours. An obligation to use your best endeavours is much more onerous than to use your reasonable endeavours. While this is not an absolute requirement to do absolutely everything possible, it has been found that such an obligation is quite burdensome and may mean that the party contracting to use best endeavours may have to undertake everything practically possible to fulfil its obligations, even if this involves taking steps which incur financial loss. So a greater sense of obligation, but it's not an absolute requirement. So I think best endeavours is getting closer to the level of effort that we need to exercise in attaining unity. I think Paul is urging us to do more than best endeavours. I believe he's encouraging us to do everything absolutely possible. And remember that this letter that Paul wrote is not just to the leaders. It's to everyone in the church. And that includes all of us. We are to do everything possible within our power to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now I think that if you've read this passage many times, as I have, that you understand that. But I wonder, how committed are we to doing everything possible to maintain the unity? Because if you've been around churches for a while, you'll, you'll sadly have experienced that sometime unity is very easily and quickly laid down for the sake of, well, this is what I want and this is what I think. This is what's best for me Therefore, this is what I will argue for, and this is what I will fight about. Whereas a desire to maintain the unity comes from a different angle. What is best for us? What does God want for us? Let's be passionate, and let's be full of energy 
and trying to discover what that is. So some points about unity. It's God that creates the unity by his spirit. We don't have to create it. It's already there. But our calling is to maintain it, to nurture it, and to make it a priority, to keep it. So what is not unity? And uniformity is not unity. We're not called to all be the same, because we couldn't be. We have different personalities, we have different giftings, we have different backgrounds, uh, we might come from different races, we might have different ways of, of doing things. We're not to be uniform. We're not to have separate factions or parties. We're not to say, well, we're the group of Christians who believe this, so therefore we won't have any connections or joining with a group of Christians who believe that. But sadly, that's what we have in our world. Being united is more than just a common creed. Now, one of the songs that I, I really like on our song list, we sang this morning. It's about that I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the Son of God. You believe in the Holy Spirit. You believe in the Holy Church. That's something that we have in common. It's our creed. But just singing that together in the same place is not unity. It can be a component of it, but in itself, unity is so much more than just having a common uh, creed or motto that we say together. It's more than just supporting the same team. There are some teams that I support, and you can go along to different events, and you can feel a real sense of uh, commonality with the people. Especially on fond memories down on the, the old bank at Carisbrook with like-minded brethren supporting the blue and gold. But that's supporting a team. That's not being united the way that God has called us to be united together. We're different, but we're not called to be the same. We've been created to be different. But the problem is that often those differences can segregate people. I think rather than segregating people with differences, we need to recognise that God's placed us together as people who are different so that we can celebrate different flavours of expression. We can enjoy different ways of looking at aspects of life. That we can be more complete if we've got people to look at things differently than if people only look at things always the same way. We won't always agree about everything. That's no surprise, is it? And we may differ strongly about some points. But if we're united, over and above those differences, we have things which are much bigger and much stronger and far more important than our differences. And I believe the things that overarch our differences are the fact that we have decided to love each other. And that love is bigger and stronger than our points of difference about whether we've, we think that the chairs should be laid out in a certain way or the carpet should be this colour or this is the way that we should do this ministry or this is the way that we should be spending a budget. All those different things which in some church contexts can split a church. When really you think, well, if, if overarching all of that is that we're committed to loving one another, and we're going to work through these points of difference in a loving way to seek out what God wants for us. 
and to recognise that if we truly love each other, we'll be willing to compromise and, like with humility, to think, what's best for the other person? What is best for us? What does God want for us? So the second thing is that, firstly, we're to love each other and we are committed to being united. We recognise that being united is something that God has called us to and that we're going to do everything possible within our power to be united in our faith through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. The things that bind us together are much greater than our differences. Maybe there will be times where you need to remind yourself that, that when all you can see is this difference that you have with someone and it's eating away at you, just ask God to show me again the bigger picture. Show me again the big things that we share, the love that we have, the unity that we have. Unity is essential because we're part of one body. We're called and filled and empowered by one spirit and we share one hope that is greater than any alternative hope that the world offers. We're going to look at these, each of these three aspects briefly. One body. There really is only one church on earth. That's how God sees it. We were travelling recently and uh, we spent some time in Jerusalem and then later on some time in Spain. And just to see the different expressions that different denominations have and how separate they are was really marked that you have a church who believes this particular aspect. Here in Jerusalem, the, the Catholics believe that this is uh, where Golgotha was, whereas the, the Protestants believe, no, no, it's over here. And that for pretty much every location that I thought we'll go to, oh, we'll go to this place and we'll see where it is, there were a lot of places where, it, well, it could be either there or it could be over there. And so I remember one time naively asking a guy, well, where is it really? And he just laughed. And he said, well, what are you? Are you a Catholic or a Protestant? And I said, well, a Protestant. He said, well, it's over there then. But if I was a Catholic, it would have been over there. There is only one church on earth. We've divided it up into denominations. And we have different forms of worship. We have different rites and ceremonies. We have different structures. We have different hierarchies. But the reality is there is only one church. Christ didn't come to redeem and save different churches and give them a different place in heaven. He came so that he could collect one community, a multitude of every complexion, from every land and unite them in one great brotherhood or one great personhood, if you're not allowed to say brotherhood, unite us together on earth and ultimately assemble us in the same heaven. The church is one. And I believe we're called to be more than just reluctant relatives. You know, there are possibly some relatives that you might have, you think, well, I probably... Wouldn't be overly disappointed if that person wasn't my relative, but they are, so yes, I'll, I'll be nice to them when I have to, once or twice a year. And as Christians and people of different denominations, we're called to be more than just reluctant relatives. We're called to be united in love for God and love for each other. 
One spirit, there is one Holy Spirit who dwells in his church. It's the same spirit who awakens faith in all of us, who enlightens us all to the truth, who convicts us all and converts us all. Now, we all have circumstantial differences, different levels of response to the Holy Spirit, but it's the same spirit who prompts each of us. It's the same spirit who fills our hearts and influences us. It's the same spirit who gives gifts to all believers. And hope, we have the same hope. We are all looking forward to the same heaven, the same new life on the other side of death. The world places its hope in different things, doesn't it? The world would hope for wealth. The world would hope for happiness. The world would hope for freedom from pain. The world would hope maybe for some honour, usually at the expense of others. I find it quite incredible that we are still motivated, and I'm still motivated, to feel like we have to get more. We need to get more money. We need to save more. We need to do this. When the reality is that we have so much in this country, we have so much that God has blessed us with, that our motivation and our hope is not in attaining more worldly goods. Our hope is on the other side of death. Our hope is an eternity in heaven. And when that influences me more than my motivation to get more worldly goods, then I'll behave differently. So what leads us to maturity? Paul explains that the role of the apostles, the prophets, the pastors and the teachers is to prepare us for works of service. Us. Surely he should appoint them to the roles of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. Then they can go and do that and we can do what we like. Isn't that how we behave some of the time? That they're the people who have trained and been called and been set aside. Let them go and do it. You know, we'll, we'll pray for them, we'll bless them, we'll applaud them, but let them get on with the job. Their job is to train us. Because the acts of service that God is expecting come from us. We're the ones who God expects to do the work of the church. You know, often we, when we employ someone to be a church worker, they're the paid ones and you know, they, they get uh, to actually go and do everything. The reality is we are the church workers. And God has called people to different roles so they can help us be trained in the way we do our, our job. They can help us identify the skills we've got. They can help us hone those skills and give us suggestions about how we can carry those skills out. There are works of service to be done. Our Christian life is not just about faith. It is equally about demonstrating our faith through deeds. James was very hot on this topic. And in chapter 2, in verse 17, he makes it very plain. He says, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. If you have faith but do nothing as a response of that faith, it's not faith at all. Pretty confronting stuff, isn't it? But I think 
to look at it from another point of view, yes, we can feel confronted that God expects us to be involved in his works of service. But then look at what happens as we do that. And I think that's what Paul is trying to encourage us, that as we carry out these works of service, the body of Christ is built up. And not only that, as we do these acts of service, as we work together, we are united in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And more than that, we become mature and we attain the full measure of the fullness of Christ. This is our goal. This is the reason why we're looking to serve God and carry out these acts of service. Will we achieve the fullness of Christ? I don't think it's likely this side of heaven. But what I do believe is that God has got us in a maturing process. Like a very fine whiskey that takes time to develop all the different flavours and textures. That an older whiskey is better tasting than a younger one because it's had time to mature. And that as we mature as Christians, we don't necessarily taste better, but we become more mature in the expression of the calling that God's got for us in our lives. And that God's desire is for us to be a mature body of believers. We can read several times in the scriptures where it says, I don't want you to be like infants. I don't want you to stay as new converts. I want you to mature. I want you to grow in your understanding of who God is, but also in the way that we can serve God by the way we live. Now, we need each other in this process. We need others to work alongside us, and we need to work alongside others because we're a body. Perhaps you don't know what your gifts are, and perhaps you don't know where you are to serve. And you might sort of think, well, okay, God, if, if I've been created for acts of service, what are they? Very good question. Ask God, but don't just stop there because we're a body. Ask those round about you. Sort of say, what do you think God has, has gifted me with? What do you see in me as being some sort of abilities um, some sort of uh, heart that I've got for different peoples or different works. Let's encourage one another to see how God has created us and gifted us so that we can encourage one another into those works of service. What stands out for me in verses 12 to 16 is the number of times the, plurara, plurara, the combination of our purpose <laughs> and our journey is highlighted. We all reach unity in verse 13. It's not just one or two, it's we all. We will no longer be infants, not one or two, we, us. We will all, in all things, grow into him who is the head. And from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, builds, grows and builds itself up in love. And I think the, the last verse in that passage as each part does its work. It's not as some parts do its work. It's all, each part. We need each other to be part of this process. We each have a role. Even the smallest, most insignificant ligament is necessary for the body to function properly. 
So I thought, okay then, what is the smallest, most insignificant muscle in the human body? Does anyone know? That's good, because I can tell you my answer and you'll believe me. I researched it through Google, and the smallest muscle in the human bottle is the stapedius muscle. It's just over one millimeter in length, and its purpose is to stabilize the smallest bone in the body, which is the stapes. Now, if the smallest muscle and the smallest bone were not working properly, and they're in your ear, then what would happen is that you wouldn't be able to filter out the volume of noise that comes in. So everything would sound incredibly loud. And further, because they're connected to the facial nerve, if they weren't working properly, uh, then it could result in Bell's palsy, which is like a partial paralysis of the face. Remember, this muscle is less than one millimetre long. But the implication of it not working the way it should is a disfiguring effect. And I think, you know, we could take that analogy and say, well, if the most insignificant person in our midst was not doing their part, it could have a significant effect on how we together operate as God calls us to. Even little things are vitally important. We can't do it on our own. We can't reach unity on our own. I want to be more mature next year than I am this year. And yes, I will be one year older next year than I am this year, but not necessarily any more mature. And I want us to be more united as a church, but not just Parklands Baptist Community Church, and not just the, the Baptist churches in Canterbury-Westland, but all Christians together. And I think that's the desire that God should place in all of our hearts. Because as we allow him to do that, it will break down these denominational boundaries which prevent us from being united to be the church that God calls us to be. So how do we do it? Well, the answer is we do it together. We believe it in our hearts and we live it in our lives that this is the truth. The truth is that together we are church. Together we build each other up in love. Together we encourage one another to recognise and develop our gifts and to find our areas of service. Together we're humble. Together we're gentle and patient with each other. Together we make every effort to keep the unity. And together we are knighted and we are maturing. Lord, we pray that that would be so. Lord, pr please show me, please show us how we can be the church that you created us to be. You've called us to be united. You've called us to acts of service. Lord, we pray that you would change our mindsets and our hearts so that we would live our lives in the light of your truth, that we are joined together, that we're interdependent on each other. May we be a group of people that truly loves one another. 
that strives to encourage one another and that serves together to please you and to bring you glory. Amen. Amen. We are going to close with a blessing together. But as we do so, I would like you to contemplate if God has been speaking into your hearts about the degree of unity, your, your commitment to being united. If he's been talking to you maybe about being called to acts of service and recognising that we have got a role within God's design to carry out. We're going to pause, going to have a, a moment of silence before we read the blessing together for you to close your eyes and to ask God, what are you saying to me? What response does he require of us? Morgan, if you could put the, the words of the blessing up for us. So let's stand together and let's say this together as an expression of our unity. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. So stay together, express some of our unity by fellowshipping with one another, by maybe a holy handshake, share some tea and coffee. Bless you.